Because this is Memorial Day weekend and tomorrow is the day that we remember those who have made sacrifices for us, I, I wanted to just ask if everyone here who has either served in the military or who has family members currently serving, if you would just stand so we could say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, very much, for what you have given and for what you were willing to give. It's just um, inspiring to see the kind of courage that has been with us throughout our history that has given us the opportunity to even gather together to have the freedom to worship. And so we thank you and appreciate you so much. We have uh, one of our veterans from our church who is going to come now and just share for a couple minutes on what Memorial Day means. And so Roger Kays. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for allowing me this time to talk about Memorial Day. It was a warm spring in the South. Flowers were blooming. Birds were flitting tree to tree. And animals moved about the field and forest, searching for food. But something was different about this day. Women, both young and old, some with children in tow, soon appeared on the scene. Moving with dignity and reverent silence, they tended the field at their feet, hands deftly clearing weeds, from small mounds that seemed to stretch endlessly across the field, from stream to fence and ravine to hill. Their effort with, to an observer might have appeared aimless and without central purpose, but it was an act of love. With each swipe of the shears or a scythe, they were clearing the graves of fallen Confederate and Union soldiers. And this simple act of compassion was soon echoed and spread to other states and enacted on other battlefields. Decoration Day, decorating with flowers, officially proclaimed on 5 May 1868 by General John Logan, commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, and was first observed May 30th of that same year. And in that ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery, flowers and flags were placed upon the graves of both Union and Confederate soldiers. The first state to officially recognize was New York in 1873. But by 1890, all northern states recognized this holiday. But because emotions were still so fresh from the Civil War, most southern states chose to recognize their fallen dead on separate days. It wasn't until after World War I that the holiday was changed to become Memorial Day, a day to celebrate the memory of those who died in all of our wars, not just the Civil War. In 1971, Congress declared that the last Monday of May would be known as Memorial Day, and that day that we honor those who died in service to our nation. So what is the meaning of this day set aside by governmental decree? Well, since the Revolutionary War, more than 44 million men and women have served in our military. And of that number, more than a million have died and paid that ultimate price. They died on battlefields far from home, with hard to pronounce names, alone but for God, and a comrade's tears for a comforting last embrace. And even now, more than 4,000 of our brave men and women 
have paid that ultimate sacrifice to answering the call to freedom in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it is for all of these that we gather each year in May to remember them, as President Lincoln put, those who gave that last full measure of devotion. And how blessed by the hand of God are we that he provided so many common citizens of uncommon valor who freely gave their lives for the cause of freedom and for the advantage of generations of Americans that they would never know and from whom they would never hear words of thanks. So Memorial Day exists to help us remember the sacrifices of all those many defenders. It's the one day a year that we acknowledge that debt that we owe to those men and women who, because they cherished peace, chose to serve as warriors and paid the ultimate price for our freedom. And why do our citizens willingly answer that clarion call to arms? Not because they believe war is good, but that sometimes it's necessary. And they fight and die not for the glory of war, but for the prize of freedom. While this weekend remains a great time for family outings to the mountains and the beach and ball games or to have picnics, we cannot allow the blessings of that moment to obscure the memory of those whose patriotism and commitment to duty, honor, and country purchased for us all that sacred prize of liberty. And to do so would dishonor both their service and their sacrifice. So this Memorial Day and each Memorial Day hereafter, please remember those who died to keep us free, free to enjoy the blessings of liberty. And thank God for providing them for our defense and for giving them such a great measure of courage, devotion, and selflessness. And in a verse by Joseph Drake, we can give voice to that remembrance. And they who for their country die shall fill an honored grave. For glory lights the soldier's tomb, and beauty weeps the brave. So how can you honor our fallen this Memorial Day? Visit local cemeteries. Look for the honored dead. Thanks to many volunteers, they'll be easy to recognize. They're the ones resting under American flags. You can fly your own American flag at half-staff until noon. Or you can attend a Memorial Day ceremony. Many of them start at 11 o'clock, but you can check your local newspaper and the internet for times and locations. And finally, you can participate in the National Moment of Remembrance at 3 o'clock on Memorial Day. This was established by Congress as a time to take one minute for silence and reflection upon those who passed from this life to the next in service to our country. So in the middle of your family picnic, or your time at the ball game, or the mountains, or the beach, or wherever it is, stop at that moment and take time to reflect. Remember those who died so that you could be enjoying what you are doing at that very moment. And thank you, and may God bless America. All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to James chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of James. Last week, we saw where James was talking about what's going on when people are fighting with other people. And he pointed out that ultimately it's because of a conflict that's within us. And ultimately a conflict that leads not only for us to be conflicted with others, but 
for us to ultimately be working against what God wants to do in our lives. And actually, we are at enmity with God often. And he said the whole issue is ultimately pride. The solution, humility. To humble yourself in the, in the sight of God. To allow yourself to be lined up with him. In a sense, to acknowledge that you aren't God and he is. Now, as we continue in the chapter, he goes along this vein and now kind of zeroes in on two really critical questions that we all have to ask ourselves often and we all have to figure out how to answer these two questions and they get to the root of why so often we do what we do. And the two questions that he asks us here in the rest of this chapter, one of them is, who are you? And the other one is, what is your life? And, and the reason this gets to the source of everything is that everything that we do in life is attempting to answer those questions in one way or another. The truth is, pride, as it, as it exists and as it destroys us and others in our lives, that causes all these fights, that pride ultimately comes because somehow we believe that we are more than what other people believe us to be. And in fact, we're desiring to have control. We are desiring to determine our own future. And we, and we are frustrated anytime someone gets in the way of that. Ultimately, pride is always an identity crisis. It's always a problem with figuring out who you are. And so James just goes after this here and the rest of chapter 4, and as the whole chapter kind of summarizes the idea that you need to let God be God and you just need to be you, um, he gets into some of the specifics of how that works. So beginning with verse 11, he says, First of all, do not speak evil of one another, brothers. The word there translated as speak evil in our edition more literally means don't speak down at or don't speak against another person. So don't speak against one another. He who speaks against a brother and judges or criticizes, the, the Greek word there is the word from which we get our word criticize. He who does that against his brother speaks evil or talks down or against the law and judges, criticizes the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And then that big question, who are you to judge another? And ultimately what he's saying is, if you find yourself being critical of others, if you find yourself talking down about others, if you find yourself speaking against others, what it reveals is that somehow you have an idea that you are something that you're not, someone that you are not. Now, much discussion has been involved around the question of what's he talking about judging the law and speaking against the law and being a lawgiver and all that kind of stuff. People have wondered, is this talking about the Old Testament law? Because he's writing to Jewish Christians at the time. 
Others would say, no, remember earlier in chapter 1, he talked about the perfect law of liberty, the law of Christ, and so that would be kind of what Jesus tells us to do. Well, actually, they're one and the same. When Jesus commented on the Old Testament law, the law that he alone had fulfilled, he said, you know, they said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, first of all, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, basically the golden rule. And he said, on these two commandments rest the entire law. And as far as that goes, all the prophets. The whole Old Testament, Jesus said, was just trying to say, love God and love people. And so regardless of specifically what James has in mind, that's what it comes down to. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, the whole point of the law and everything that Jesus said, the new commandment that he gave to us, which was even greater than love your neighbor as you love yourself, his commandment was love others the way I have loved you. But that commandment to love, if you are choosing not to do that, and you are going contrary to that, then what you're saying is, you know what? I know what God's law is. I know what he says to do, but you know what? I'm going to make up my own. And my law, my religion says, you better do it my way. And I might need to add certain specific applications in order to make people conform to what my law is. And people have always done this. Jesus upbraided the Pharisees constantly for doing this with the Old Testament law. And it still hasn't stopped, whereby people create artificial rules and standards that they lump together and say, here are the rules that you have to follow, or I judge you. That word for judge, by the way, crene, is, is a word that means to make an assessment or a creative sort of evaluation based on criteria, which is, comes from the same word as well. So it's to evaluate, to assess, to judge. So he says, if you're going to do that to people, what you're really doing, the one you are really judging, is God himself. So many people have been driven away from Christianity because of all the extra stuff that people have put in there, basically inventing our own religion. You can look back historically and see how this happened plenty of times, but it's a bit harder, but just as important for us to recognize when we do it today. I, as a pastor, sometimes am, am concerned when I see people reacting to me as a pastor, and I understand that they have an idea that I live by a bigger set of rules than to love your neighbor as yourself. I was visiting some people this week. The, the woman is about ready to go be with the Lord probably this week, and they wanted me to come out and pray with her. And I was with her and her husband and just watching God just, you know, working in their lives and, and just always exciting to see someone who's ready to meet the Lord. But somehow during our conversation, um, the husband had said he was talking about something and he mentioned hell. And then he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, mean, I mean the other place. <laughs> and it's like, where'd you get the idea? I mean, the Bible says a lot about hell. 
somehow you got the idea that, oh, good people don't use that word. Um, you know, and then he wanted to have a cigarette, and he had cigarettes in his pocket. And his wife, who's, you know, dying, also wanted to have a cigarette. But I could tell they were just like, really, oh, um, I'm sorry, Pastor. They felt like they owed me an explanation as to where did we get the idea that somehow cigarettes are a part of the rules, are a part of what makes you good or not? Well, it's arbitrary. It's man-made. Now, I'm not an advocate for smoking. I think it's stupid. But, <laughs> however, but I don't think it has anything to do with God. And, and I also think eating cupcakes is just as stupid. But as Christians, we celebrate cupcakes and we... And we, and we disdain those who are, are, are sucking nicotine into their lungs. And it's like, where does this come about? It's man-made religion, pure and simple. And we add all of these ideas. There are certain things, you know. There, there are times when I meet somebody who goes, you're a pastor and you ride a Harley? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what rule book? You think I'd be more spiritual on a Honda or... You know, <laughs> Should I drive a station wagon? Uh, you know, wh where does this come from? But what James is saying here is, you guys, who do you think you are? You are making up your own religion. And when you do that, you are judging the religion that was created by the one lawgiver, the one guy who has a right to tell us how to live, and you're adding your stuff into it and along with it. And he said, James says, I'd just like you to think about, wait a minute, who are you? And I think for each of us, we need to answer that question, who am I? Am I the one who gets to make up the rules? Am I the one who gets to judge others? Is it important for me to make sure that other people agree with me? Is it important for me that, that if I see someone who I think doesn't quite fit with the way I want to do things, I've got to straighten them out. You know, and we all somewhat feel that way, but James is making it clear. This is what I'm talking about. You're an enemy of God when you do that. It's pride that causes you to think that your job on the earth is to straighten other people out. And as we're going to see as we go on, it puts a tremendous burden on you to feel that you have to do that. It becomes positively overwhelming to think that you're God that you need to fix other people, that you need to straighten them out, that if someone says something wrong, I mean, you could be sitting in a restaurant and you hear somebody say something ignorant and it's like, oh, I gotta tell them. I, if they knew about this website or if they knew what I, I, I know they would see things differently. And, and, and sometimes we think that the energy of our lives is to be spent playing God in the lives of others. And what James is going is, you know what? It's not depending on you. You don't have to do this. This isn't your problem to correct others, to judge others. Some people are so intent on judging others that even in reading the scripture, which I read it and I go, how in the world can you, can you, can you miss this? And then they go, well, it says brothers. And so there are some people, I don't even think they're brothers. So they're definitely... I, I not only judge them, but I judge them to be not a Christian. Nothing is more dangerous to me than for somebody to look at someone who professes to believe in Jesus Christ 
and to come to the conclusion, I know better than you do, I don't think you believe in Jesus Christ. To begin to define for other people what they believe. And yet they do this and go, well, because they're not a Christian, therefore I can be critical of them. And I can judge whether or not they're Christians. Now here's the problem. Nothing makes me more upset than seeing people who are negative and critical. But the only way I know of to point it out is by being negative and critical about people who are negative and critical. So it's a real sticky sort of thing. And then when you read, there are places in the scriptures where the Bible does talk about the importance of judging in certain respects, especially the mandate for pastors to be able to make certain judgments and, and to be held accountable. And if, a, if an elder gets out of line, that they are to be rebuked in front of everyone and, and you know, to be, that those problems should be addressed. It's not always an easy thing, but let me just say this. If you are in a position, like for instance, if you have been elected as a judge, then the commandment to not judge others does not apply to you because you're not judging personally, you are judging representing the people. And in the same way, if you have a position, whether it's as a parent over children, whether it's a position in your employment, whether it's a position in the church, and a part of that responsibility is to make certain assessments, this, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people who are making personal judgments, and especially people who are not, who have no business doing it. Again, who do you think you are to judge? Well, I'm a judge. Oh, okay. Then you know who you are. But ultimately, the spirit of this is, let God judge. Don't be speaking against others. It doesn't really matter that you can look at someone and size them up and draw certain conclusions about them. You don't need to do that. That's God's job. And he does it very well. And so many times when we judge, we're just plain wrong. I mean, there are times when I look back and just think how, how foolish I was to make a judgment. And I thought I, I thought I was right. I thought somebody would appreciate me straightening them out or at least me pointing out the, the problems that someone had. I, I've told the story, I think, before about... Uh, years ago at Calvary Costa Mesa, there was a guy on staff who his wife had died, and he started dating this girl, beautiful girl, and, but they always sat on the front row. And I just thought, why do they always sit on the front row? And then it was kind of creepy because when I'd get up there and pray, lead in prayer, uh, as I would be praying, I would feel like somebody's staring at me, and I'd look, and, and this girl is staring at me. And I'm just like, that's really creepy. And, and then I'd notice, like, right, I'd peek, and right at the end of the prayer, she'd bow her head and then pull it back up. And so w one day, while we were counting the offering in the counting room, where pastors were talking, and I was going, yeah, what's with that? You know, Don's girlfriend, it, she's, she stares at you. They always have to sit on the front row to be seen by people. And the way she just is glued on you and stares during prayer and everything, and everybody's, yeah, yeah, that's weird. And then he came in right then, and he starts talking, and he goes, yeah, you know, Leslie, um, man, God's really working on her life. Um, you know, she's deaf, and so, and it's like instantly, <laughs> she's reading our lips. They have to sit in the front so that she can read lips, and I, I felt like, what am I, 
how stupid of me to make, and I thought I had it figured out. Oh yeah, just wanting to show off, wanting to be up front. And, nah, it wasn't quite right. And, and so James just goes, who are you? Are you really the one that's called to straighten out other people? Are they asking you to do that? It's a real privilege, by the way, when someone trusts you enough to say, could you share with me if you see me doing anything that's kind of off? I'd really want that. And if, if someone gives you that privilege, take it as a blessing and, and treat it very carefully and sensitively. But when we take that upon ourselves, boy, you better be careful because you're right in an area where you might be playing God. And I just don't think that most of our criticism and most of our negative talk is even necessary at all. And it's a dangerous thing because we all struggle with pride, every one of us. In fact, the people here who people think are the most humble are probably the ones who struggle with pride the most. You know, I know I've had people come to me and go, you know, I love you because you're just so humble. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I don't think so. But James is just going... Remember who you are. And this should take a load off of you. Because as you go through life, you see people who are all messed up everywhere. They're not your problem. You don't have to fix them. It's okay if they continue to be wrong. Your job is to show them love. Because it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And that's our job. That's who we are as far as what God says. And so then James goes on and gets to his second question, but it, it seems almost disconnected, but I think you'll see how it flows together. In verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil or literally paniras. It means hurtful. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is kind of strange because... It seems like he's criticizing people for planning, for saying, okay, here's my vision, here's what I want to do, here's how I'm going to get there, now I'm going to make that happen. And there are a whole lot of people who would tell you that's what responsibility is. You, you, you have to plan. And it's certainly true, if you don't make plans, that's a bad thing. That is irresponsibility. But what he is getting at is the problem that happens when our plans don't go the way we want them to. And, and let's face it, a lot of people who don't plan, it's because they used to, and it never worked out. They became frustrated. They, they became so disappointed. And you get to where it's like, I tell somebody I'll do something, and then I'm not able to do it. I, something else comes up, or I forget, or I can't make it happen. And I just feel so disappointed in myself and other people feel disappointed in me. So you just go, you know what? I'm just not going to make any commitments at all. But he's saying, just recognize the nature of life. Recognize how short it is and don't make any kind of plans 
that you will be devastated if it doesn't work out. Don't, yeah, make plans and do what you can do. But he says, don't forget God's will. Make your plans, but say, if the Lord wills, he says, we shall live and do this or that. To do otherwise is to be arrogant. To say, I will do this, I don't know. If the Lord wills, if the Lord makes it possible, I'll do what I can do. But see, if we do that, then we don't live with that roller coaster of emotion when things don't go our way. And again, that's what this whole chapter is about. What happens when things don't go my way? In other words, what happens when I find out I'm not God? And he's trying to, James is trying to help us to learn to flow with what happens and to realize God knows what he's doing. And he never gets his plans goofed up by having a bad day or by getting bad luck or by somebody derailing what he wants to do. God knows what he's doing. He is always in control. And so by James saying, look, your life is a vapor. Now, for us, that, you know, it's not something that we, a verse that we want to memorize all the time, teach the kids, hey, your life is a vapor. It's going to be over before you know it. Poof, you'll be gone. Nobody will care. Praise the Lord, you know. But part of why that feels so bad for us is that we've taken too much responsibility on ourselves. And, and the result of that is pressure on ourselves. But let's face it, it's undeniable. Our life is quick. Our life is short. Now, the older I get, the more I realize how short it is. And I look back, and yeah, I can remember a lot of things. But, you know, the, the truth is, I have more years behind me than I have ahead of me except for heaven, if you count that, I have eternal life, and so no problem. But here on the earth, the truth is, I'm not going to put more than a ripple in the water. I'm not going to put more than a dent in the overall scheme of human history. And that's just the way it is. And people will say, oh, no, no, you know, you've touched my life forever. Hey, I'm too old to believe that. I know that you can make a difference in people's lives, but I also know they'd be fine without you. And when I go to be with the Lord, I don't expect monuments to be built. And I don't expect people to be wearing bracelets that say, what would Dave do after I'm gone? <laughs> and I'm glad they don't. I mean, there are so many things that I've done that I'll be happy when people forget it. I'll be happy when people don't listen to what I say anymore. It'll be, it'll be kind of a relief in a way because there's a responsibility that goes along with doing anything in life. And so once we realize the truth and face the truth, you're not going to live forever on earth. And what you do affects people a lot less than you think it does. You can either just be bummed about that. Now think about it. If you're bummed when I tell you that your life is like a vapor, it's going to like that, what did you think your life was? Because that's what he says. What is your life? Did you really think the universe revolves around you? Do you really think that people really desperately need you? Do you really think that somehow that you personally are going to change the world forever? That's weird. You know, that's really warped and out of balance 
But not only that, that puts tremendous pressure on someone. And what I see in our society today, and even within the church, is people who don't understand that the pressure is not on you. Yeah, you have pressures. You get up every day. You do what God has given you to do. But if you sit there and watch the news and go, oh, no, this is bad. What are you going to do about it? I mean, like I say, as important as it is to be good citizens and vote, let's face it, we live in California. Nobody here votes like us. But you do what your responsibility is, but you don't have to feel like it's all on your shoulders. And, and see, this is the way somebody lives their life who is ultimately prideful, call it what it is. When I see somebody who's wrong, I need to make them right. When I see somebody with a wrong opinion, I need to straighten them out. When I see someone who's embarrassing themselves, I need to let them know. And ultimately, people need to be more like me. That's what the world needs. And, and see, I'm going to make a plan in order to achieve what I want life to be, what I want the world to be, what I want people to be. And I'm going to fight with anyone who fights against my agenda. And if you do that, you're going to be constantly at battle, and life is just going to be one headache, one piece of stress. God's heart for us is not that we live that way. God's heart for us is that we would face the thing that we're actually scared to death of. And that is, who are you? And what is your life? And the truth is, when you discover what the Bible says about who you are and what your life is, it doesn't end up bad at all. It ends up with eternity. It ends up with the fact that it's God's problem. We work for Him. We work with Him. He, he can bless us and He can use us to bless others, but man, knock off the stress. Knock off the feeling that somehow you have to save the world, that you have to fix everything. And we put this incredible pressure on ourselves. And then what happens, as he said earlier in the chapter, wars and fightings. We're always, there's always somebody who's opposing my agenda for the world. There's always somebody who's messing up my plans. There's always somebody in the way. And if they would just listen to me, this world would be a better place. No, it wouldn't because you're not God. Accept the fact that you're not God, that you're not a judge, that you can't make up your own religion. God is God. Submit to Him. And ultimately, you're not going to end up being put down. The only true elevation in your life that can ever happen is, as we saw last week, when you humble yourself in the sight of God, He will elevate you. He will lift you up. It's such a good feeling to have him lift me up instead of having me depending on other people lifting me up or me trying to hoist myself up the pole. That's just, that's a dead end. And so James is just going, in this whole chapter, the idea is just know who God is and line yourself up with him. If something has happened, accept it. Make the best of it. Flow with it. Live your life according to God, whatever you want. Whatever, here's my plan for this week, but God, your plan is more important than mine. And I often pray that prayer in Psalm 36, 9, where, where he says, my times are in your hands. 
And I, and I used to always write that across the top of my, of my daily planner. Here's what I have planned, but my times are in your hands. And, and just accept it. I, I always tell the people in the office that when there are people that they know are flaky, because there are some people who make appointments and then they just don't show up. So I always say, give them an appointment at 4 o'clock. Because then when they call and cancel, I'm done an hour early. I can go home. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry if this is offensive to you, but whenever I get a call canceling an appointment, I'm like, yes, it's like a gift. <laughs> Not that I, I love talking to people. I love sharing with you and things like that. But it just shows me how nice it is to have a chunk of time where now I don't have to fix anything during that time. Now, don't call up and make bogus appointments just so I can... <laughs> But I know people who have done that as well. But, you know, there are times when people will call up and they want an appointment, and I go, well, yeah, anytime between 9 and 5, oh, well, I have to work. Um, so how about, is there any way we could meet in the evening? I'm like, I have to work too, but sure. We'll set up an appointment at like 6, and I'll wait. Everybody else is gone, and I wait. They just don't show up. But, I, you know, it's like... It can be frustrating, but what if every appointment that we made in our life was saying, but God, if you have a better plan, it's cool with me. I won't be disappointed when somebody doesn't play along with me. I won't be disappointed when somebody doesn't conform into the image of me. See, I will deal with life as it comes, and I'll understand it's not depending on me. It's not on my shoulders I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to make it work. I don't have to save myself. I don't have to save or fix anybody else. I'm just a servant of God. I'm just flowing with life, trying to live life the best way that I can and trying to maintain that perspective of who I am and especially of who God is. And I'm telling you, although that sounds threatening and ominous, to accept who you are and accept what significance there is to you, it'll take all the pressure off of you. You'll realize the universe isn't depending on you. It's, it's not up to you. You can relax. You can take a day off and the universe isn't going to collapse on itself. God can't. You can Everything holds together by His power. So often, we are living life hanging on to it out of desperation and stress. And what does that do ultimately? Back to verse 1. Where do fights and wars come among you? That's where, that's where it comes from. It comes because we forget who we are and we forget who God is. Remember, when you remember who you are and what your life is, pressure's off. And you will always have a better life and perform better and get more done when you realize it's not that pressure. You are not at the free throw line with the game on the line a half a second to go down by one. Don't live your life that way. Just relax. You're just shooting around. You're just involved with everyone else. Relationships that you form are more important than everything else that you do in life. Understand that. That's your job. That's who you are. That's what life is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word.
And at first, it really rubs us the wrong way when you keep emphasizing that we're not God. Because the truth is, in a bunch of different ways, we think we are. We try to make our own religion up. We try to make everyone else be our little army men that we can maneuver and manipulate so that we can have a perfect world. But God, we don't know. Help us to realize what you have called us to, to be faithful to that. Help us to work on the log in our eye before we're taking specks out of other people's eyes. And help us to give you your rightful place as the Lord. And we thank you. And we don't want to be those who know to do right and don't do it because that's sin. We want to be obedient children, enjoying our fellowship with you and with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.